Well, last week we started on our study of 1 Timothy, and lo and behold, we got through verses 1 and 2. Uh, if you've been here for very long, you know that I'm preaching differently than I used to. I used to have the sermon outlines and all those kinds of things. But let me tell you, it was a struggle for me every week to take this scripture and kind of force it into my preconceived outline of the way things were supposed to be or, or whatever uh, and all of that. And I'm a big fan of John Calvin. Not that I agree with John Calvin on everything, but he really has a great heart for God that I really wish I had. Uh, but this is the way he preached. And this kind of preaching is not so popular today. And what I used to do was a, proper, or a, pro, a popular way of doing it. Uh, but I just think there's something that's really you gain by going through the word. It may take us two years to get through First Timothy, but may it take us two years if it takes us two years. Uh, but there is something that we gain by going through here. There's a there's a depth and there's a richness that we're not going to get, you know, if we take large chunks at one time, that sort of thing. So forgive me if I only cover a couple of verses some weeks. Uh, but last week, you need to understand, I was laying a lot of groundwork for what was coming. You know, a lot of the historical stuff that went along with the letter and who Paul was and who Timothy was and, and all of that. Uh, so today, we're going to be picking up with verses 3, and my intention is to get at least through verse 5. So I'm going to read from the very beginning from the New American Standard. Uh, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope, to Timothy, my true child in faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God, the Father in Christ Jesus, our Lord, I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus in order that you may be instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God which is by faith but the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith for some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussions Now, I don't know how much you know about ancient Near Eastern geography. I mean, when I say Macedonia, do you understand what Macedonia is? There's still an area that's referred to as Macedonia today. It's the same area. And that's that little strip of land in which some people would consider part of northern Greece. That kind of connects between Greece and it reaches over to Asia Minor with the strait of whatever it is in between the two. Right? You understand what I'm talking about? Macedonia. It's a place that Paul visited on, for the first time, on his second missionary journey. First missionary journey, he never made it as far as Macedonia. But his second missionary journey, he returned there. And then he also visited there uh, on his third missionary journey. And just remember how that came, all that came about. Paul had, 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 left with Barnabas initially to go on that first journey, and they'd gone to, to the eastern part of Asia Minor, and that's where Lystra is and Iconium and Derby and some other places, and they preached the gospel there, but, but they didn't go any further. They turned around and they, came, they went back to uh, Jerusalem and then eventually to Antioch uh, or vice versa. 
Uh, but then, you know, Paul and Barnabas decided they were going to go again, and then they had uh, the disagreement, and they separated from one another, right? You understand that. So Barnabas went off with John Mark, his cousin, to Cyprus, and Paul took the land route, and he, what he did was he, he's approaching Asia Minor now from the east, and so he just worked his way through there. He revisited the places that he and Barnabas had been on their first trip. And then, being led by the Spirit in the Scriptures, if you read this, the, the accounts of this in Acts, very clearly Paul was listening to the guiding of the Holy Spirit, where he was supposed to go and where he was not supposed to go. And he's moving to the west. The Lord enlightened him that he was not going to let him go into a place called Asia. Now, when we think about Asia, we think about the continent. It wasn't that. It was a province. It was a Roman province that was on the western end of Asia Minor where Ephesus is. But anyway, Paul and his party, they made it to a place called Troas, at the very tip of Asia Minor, to the north. And they left from there, and they crossed over into Macedonia. And in Macedonia, this is where Paul visited Philippi, and he visited uh, <clears throat> some other places, but, but in particular Thessalonica and also Berea. Okay, once you get beyond that, going south, then you're going to be down into Greece. And he went there too. But so those are some of the churches that were planted by the Apostle Paul in his journeys that you would find in Macedonia, Philippi, Thessalonica, uh, and Berea. Uh, And as far as Ephesus goes, Ephesus was a city like we said in Asia. It was that province that was directly at the eastern tip or western tip of Asia Minor. Uh, Colossae would be another one of the cities was there in that area. Philadelphia was another one of the cities. Those seven churches in the letter, uh, letters to the churches in Revelation were addressed to, to towns, to churches in the province of Asia, in Asia Minor. Now, as far as Paul in Ephesus goes, he did make it to Ephesus on, on his second missionary journey, but he didn't do it on the way. Remember, the Holy Spirit went and him going into Asia, so he went on over into Macedonia. But he had that vision, remember that? He was trying to figure out what the Lord wanted him to do, which direction was he supposed to go in. And he had this vision at night of this Macedonian man coming and begging him to come over and help them. And he, he knew that was God speaking to him, so they went ahead and crossed over and went on down. But once they had gone through Macedonia, they wound, it, wound up in Athens first and then in Corinth. And he spent a year and a half in Corinth at that point. And it was from Corinth that he left to go back to Antioch eventually. But he didn't go by the land route. He went by sea. And he stopped briefly in Ephesus. But he was in a hurry to get back, and so he didn't stay there very long. On his third journey, he visits Ephesus, and he stays there for three years. Is one of the first places he went to on his, second, or his third missionary journey. He stays there for three years. And if you know the story about this, he was actually run out of town by a mob, an angry mob, uh, because he was causing issues in the business of the people who made silver idols and etc. for the people to use in worship. But he stayed there for three years. But what we're looking at here is this letter was written not long after that. 
because he makes reference to this, that, that when Paul was run out of Ephesus, and then he left there, and he went on, and he went on into Macedonia, and then he eventually went back down to Corinth. He left Timothy behind. Now, if you remember Timothy, as we introduced last week, that he was like, he became Paul's protege. I mean, if you were to identify the principal person uh, in, in Paul's ministry from that point onward, you probably would say it was Timothy. Timothy this and Timothy that. And just remember, there was a sense in which Paul was Timothy's spiritual father. Can you imagine sitting under the teaching of the Apostle Paul and living with Paul and, uh, and, and all of that? How much he had learned in the time he had been with the Apostle Paul. And now we know he's been with him at least for three years because he picked him up on the second missionary journey. Right? Paul would not have left him given the circumstances. These people were out for blood. He would not have left someone so closely associated with them unless he had really, really exceptionally good reason to do so. Paul saw something that was going on in Ephesus that was so important to him and he knew he could no longer stay there. And The Lord was calling him other places that he had to leave someone behind to fight the battle that was brewing. And that person was Timothy. Even as I encouraged you when I proceeded into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus in order that what? For what reason? That you may direct or instruct or command certain men not to teach another doctrine. Why would Paul say that? Because there were people there who were doing exactly that. They were teaching all kinds of false and untrue things and claiming those things to have come from Jesus Christ. False doctrines. False teachings. Is that an issue today? I mean, are there places where people are being taught falsely? Now, what we would say to you this week, we feel very strongly in the inerrancy, inspiration, inerrancy, uh, infallibility of Scripture. We believe that everything that we do and everything that we practice must be founded in Scripture. In other words, if we practice it, this is why. It's not that we just practice this. The explanation of why we do it is because this is what the scriptures tell us. This is what God has revealed to us that his expectations happen to be. Now, let me ask you something. Do you think that at least to some degree, we don't hold church history to the same level we do scripture. We know that scripture is above everything else. But do you think it would be wise for us to give consideration to teaching Sometimes it weighed in the balance of history. In other words, what have our brothers and sisters in Christ believed about particular things for centuries? You think it's a good idea to do that? In other words, before we set off on some course that's completely contrary to what's been taught up to that point, don't, wouldn't it be wise for us to consider, have we come to some conclusion that, that people in the church never have before?
Again, church history holds no, is, is not the same thing as Scripture. Scripture is always the key thing. But history helps us understand how people have understood the Scriptures and what they've taught. Sometimes they've been very wrong, by the way, too. What if, uh, what, what about this? You guys have heard about the pre-tree of rapture, right? Most of you have. If you haven't, you've been walking around with a bucket over your head, okay? Because it's become one of the most controversial and most noted, and, and, and I would say in some circles of the church today, most strongly believed doctrines that you find. In the church today, you probably have heard something of it. Maybe, maybe you're a dispensationalist this morning. I'm not here to throw stones at you or anything like that. But I want you to understand something, and that is what you believe should be based in Scripture and Scripture only. And we should ask that question, did people believe this in the church before? And let me tell you, the answer to that question is no. It's only since the early 1820s when a guy, a guy named John Nelson Darby developed this kind of approach to theology called dispensationalism. There is no historical evidence that any Christian ever believed such a thing in all of the history of the church until 1825 or so. Today, there are circles in the church of Jesus Christ that believe it so strongly, it seems as though they would be willing to die for it. I know people like that. I know people that I can't even have a conversation, uh, you know, uh, just a le- legitimate, casual conversation with because of it. But again, there is no historical evidence that any Christian ever believed it till 1825. And there's not only that, there's no biblical evidence for it either. And what I would say to you, there is absolutely nothing in Scripture that would cause me to believe this. And let me tell you, I have had conversation after conversation. I've researched this, that, and the other, and every passage that these people bring to my attention is better explained by other means, not some pre-trib rapture. And some of the most respected pastors in the United States today are dispensationalists. Some of the preachers that I listen to on occasion, they're dispensationalists. But when they get off on this stuff, I separate from them. Because as far as I'm concerned, and as far as Reformed churches are concerned, they are teaching false doctrine. I listen to the Joy FM all the time. Some of you would like it. Some of you wouldn't like it because most of the music is contemporary kind of music, which I like some of it. Not all of it, don't get me wrong. But I've been hearing this particular commercial on there that causes me to cringe every time I hear it. And it's a pastor 
basically advertising their church. And this pastor is a woman. Okay? That right there raises a lot of in me because, let me tell you, there is some biblical argument for women being deacons. You need to understand that. There is at least some degree of argument for women being deacons. But let me tell you, there's not one single evidence of Scripture in Scripture that women can be appointed as elders or pastors. It does not exist. And let me tell you, history attests to the same thing. It's something the church has known for generation after generation for 2,000 years, and it's only been within the last 50 years that it's become an issue. Because that's how clear the Scriptures are. It's not something that's muddy. It's not that, well, that's your opinion and this is my opinion. It is what does the Bible say. And this is what the Bible says, that elders must be men. And it's not because the Bible or, or Christians have a low view of women. It's got nothing to do with that. It, it, it's maintaining that God has created both man and woman, and there are distinctives between the two. And this is responsibility that he's given to the men. It's his show. It's his thing. He can do whatever he wants to. He doesn't have to explain it to us. He has his reasons. But there's something else that she says that bothers me. And and let me tell you, I would imagine if most of you heard this, you would be fine with it. You would be absolutely fine with it because it sounds fine, and it is fine in the right, if you under, have the right understanding about it. But the last thing she says is, we are saved by love. Now, we understand that there's a sense in which we are saved by love, right? The love of God has reached down from heaven in the likeness of a person of his son, Right? And we know that love was the motivation behind all of it. But let me tell you something. That phrase never appears in Scripture at all. It never says that we are saved by love, ever. What it says is that we are saved by grace through faith. So am I making a big deal out of something? Well, some people would probably say yes. Let me tell you, when, when things start to get fuzzy, it's real easy to go from here to there before we even know what's going on. It's so nice for me when I go to General Assembly and to Presbytery, because let me tell you, we don't even have conversations about whether women should be nominated and elected to the office of elder. They don't even come up because the Scripture is speaking very clearly. There's no doubt about it. It's not a gray area. We don't have conversations about whether homosexuality is a sin or not. According to Scripture, it is. As much as sometimes we want to lessen that and, you know, say, well, we're all sinners. We know we sin in different ways. We can't ever justify sin by something like that. Do you understand what I'm saying? You see how easy it is for people to go off on in directions. Thinking, thinking, because I'm sure that Charles Nelson Darby thought that he had found some mysterious kind of code in the Scriptures, and he was revealing it to people. But how many people in the long run has that teaching led way off course? We've talked recently, because there's so much going on in our nation today, that people are talking about interpretation of the Constitution. 
that there really are two fundamentally different schools of thought, and that's one of the reasons why we're in at such odds with each other today. And one of those is this. There's the view, and this would be called the conservative view, that the Constitution is supposed to be read and understood literally. Then you have another view called the liberal view, and that idea there is this, is that the Constitution is a living, breathing document that's supposed to evolve as our knowledge and understanding of things evolve. What I'm telling you this morning is there are people who want to apply the same thing when it comes to interpreting the Bible. The conservatives say, what does the Bible say? Period. What has God said to us? What has he made clear to us? That's what our question is. The liberal, on the other hand, is saying things like, how does it make me feel? And how does it do this? And how does it do that? And, uh, you know, and certainly it can't say that. And it certainly doesn't say it. sounds like it says that, but that's not what it says at all. Because we know that God would never say anything like that. Pretty scary, isn't it? I'm telling you, it's, it's, one of, it's one of the big divisions in the church today. is the mindset in regard to what role Scripture plays and how we go about understanding it, and how we go about applying it. Paul will later write to Timothy these words. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reproof, rebuke, exhort, and with great patience and instruction, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. Do we see that happening today? It's happened in every age to some degree. So I just you need to understand that it's not something that's unique today, but we have to definitely say that, in fact, it is an issue today. It is happening today. But again, it comes down to what does the Bible say? What has God said? That's what matters. Now, let me tell you, our feelings are important. Don't get me wrong. But that's not the fundamental thing that determines what truth is. Is how something makes me feel. Does that determine whether it's true or not? No. It's what has the Lord said. Not, he's warned him to, to, and I want you to understand something. In many of the translations, he's instructed these men not to teach false doctrines. What it really says there more literally, it was more force, is command people not to teach false doctrines. A little bit of difference there, right? You need to understand that in a sense, Paul was conveying his authority as an apostle to Timothy as his representative. I mean, they were in a fight. You need to understand this. They were, they were in a fight. There were these doctrinal differences that were coming up. It's 
So, so command them not to teach false doctrines, nor pay attention to misfables and endless genealogies which offer useless speculations rather than training the administra- or in the administrations or the administrators of God in faith. How much of the Bible have you studied? Is this something you do on a regular basis? I can remember years ago, there was a guy here named Jim Burgett. He was a brand-new believer. About eight months, maybe less than a year after he first came to faith, he came to me and said, Keith, I just finished reading the Bible for the first time. And I looked at him and I said, Jim, I said, you just did something that most Christians won't do in their whole lifetime. That's pretty sad. I want to encourage all of you to be in the words. And one of the things we need to do is we need to read it through. Let me ask you this. If you read a novel, how much sense of it would it make to you if you took a, a, you know, a sentence off of this page and one off that page and so on and so on? What I'm telling you is the only way that you can really understand what the Scripture says is if you read it and you balance everything in the balance of the rest of it. And if you don't know the rest of it, you can't do that. But if you dedicate your life to studying Scripture, it's a lifelong endeavor. There's sufficient material in Scripture that is clear as a bell. It'll consume your whole life if you study it without ever going off on some rabbit trail. Without going on some speculation, some speculative pathway that you decided you want to Go down. Someone asked me just recently, one of our neighbors, I was just out in the yard working one day, and he stopped by, and he said he was having a conversation with someone about the Bible earlier that week, and he asked me this question. He said, you know, the Bible teaches us that, uh, that it's a sin for brothers and sisters to marry and certainly to have children, so how in the world did, did, did the man proceed forth from Adam and Eve into the next generation? You know what I told him? I don't know. R.C. Sproul, not a perfect man, <laughs> by any sense of the word, but he's, he's got to be one of the most intellectual, knowledgeable people in the United States today in, in Christian leadership position. He just he is a very thoughtful man. I've yet to to have anyone ask hear anyone ask a question of him that he hasn't given a remarkable answer to uh, except once. Someone just recently, and I was watching this because I really expected him to have an answer and I was dying to hear what the answer was going to be. It was the whole reason I was watching it. Because I don't have an answer to this question. And the question was this. If God made everything and everything is good, then where did evil come from? You know what R.C. Sproul said? He said, I don't know. Scripture does not enlighten us to that. People today, I really believe this, they think that every answer, the question to every answer they have, you're going to find somewhere in the Bible. 
But let me tell you guys, that's not true. The Bible's not this, this concordance, this index that you and I go to just when we want to answer to this particular question. And surely we're going to find it there somewhere. You need to understand something. The Bible doesn't give us answers to absolutely que- every question that we have. And that's one of them. But you know, what do you think most people, what do you think most people in teaching positions would do when they're put in a situation like that where someone is asking them a question and they're expecting you to give them an answer? What do you think the tendency of people is going to be to give them some kind of an answer? But I'm telling you guys, there are times it's better for us to say, I don't know when I don't know. And let me tell you, that'll get people's attention like nothing else will. Because they believe, unbelievers believe, that you think you know everything. It might open a door for you to be able to admit to them that you don't have all the answers. Because what they're used to is religious people who know it all. They have every answer to every question. How many times have people started out with a little bit to go on, and the next thing you know, they've come to the end of the stuff you can know, and then they just begin to build on it. And before you know it, they've gone way, way off into the ozone. And the next thing you know, people are believing it. And the preacher at Rapture is just a good example of it. It started out as just speculation. The next thing you know, it's accepted as doctrine and by a lot of people. And one of the reasons that Paul is saying these things is because rather than doing what they're supposed to be doing, and that is training people basically in the administrations of God or the Word of God or the church, so on and so on and so on, in faith, they're spending their time running down all kinds of rabbit trails that are useless, a waste of time, and they don't answer anybody's questions. Stick to the meat is what Paul is saying. Now, we understand that genealogies were really important to Jewish people, and a lot of the early converts were Jewish people, right? Genealogy was it. Because what you had to be able to do is to trace your genealogy to Abraham, right? To be considered an Israelite and to have all the rights and privileges that came with that. You had to be able to trace your family line all the way back to Abraham. Can you do that? Is Abraham in your family ancestry somewhere? Some of you, he is. Maybe a large percentage of us. There's a way it's possible that every one of us, if you went back far enough in our genealogy, that we would have some connection there. But we understand this, that there is a genealogy that's important, but it's not by family history. 
It's not by blood descent. The genealogy that's important for us to be a part of is the genealogy of Christ. Through Abraham, the same faith that Abraham had. Right? My whole point here is don't get off on rabbit trails. There's enough stuff there that is clear, not controversial, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not telling you not to grow because we need to grow. But don't waste time trying to answer questions you know to begin with there's no answer for. It's not going to help you and it's not going to help anybody else either. Training, instructing. So it's rather than training and instructing, they're doing what is really detrimental to people. They're teaching false doctrine. But there is an end to teaching that goes on in the church. Right? And one of the biggest aspects of it is training. Training, teaching us what we're, not only what we're supposed to know, but what we're supposed to do and how we're supposed to go about doing it. According to God's words. Now, I was watching a video just a couple of weeks ago, and the question was this, is seminary really necessary for someone that's going into the pastoral ministry? I don't know if you realize it or not, but... Uh, but seminary is getting to be extremely expensive. It's not cheap to go to seminary. There's all kinds of things that enter into this picture. And there's a sense in which you say, yes, not really necessary. But let me tell you, there's a difference between absolute essential and wise. Okay, why do I say that? I say that because we see it's the pattern that we see with Jesus... In training the disciples, we do the same thing in the Apostle Paul by training Timothy and other men to follow after him. That there is real value in it. Let me give you something that might help you understand this better. And that is, if you go to Uganda, a lot of people go around barefoot. I know some of the ladies here, or maybe some of the guys would rather just as soon be barefoot all the time. I know Lori would. Uh, but let me tell you something. You get to a place like Uganda, you know, we may be wanting a new house, a new car, something like that. One of the things a lot of people want is just a decent pair of shoes or just a pair of shoes, period. Isn't that amazing? I lost my train of thought. Does that ever happen to you? <laughs> it's happening to me more and more. Uh, okay, we're talking about seminary and stuff. The reason I bring this up is you need to understand something. That is ELI, Equipping Leaders International, which is this, the, the ministry that, that Don Mountain actually founded. And he was the executive director for years. And he stepped down from the directorship last year, and now he's... He's one of their instructors. They, they, they started maybe 
10 or 15 years ago, this ministry started. And it has mushroomed. It is blossoming. It is growing like game busters. Last year, they had an impact on 1.5 million people. Because what they do is they go to underdeveloped countries in Africa, in uh, Asia. They spend a lot of time in India, a lot of time in Uganda, Liberia, places like that. And what they're doing is called Equipping Leaders International. They're doing what Paul is encouraging Timothy to do here. To equip these men, they go, and, they, and this costs the people, the, the people who attend these seminars, absolutely nothing. And they get a lot of extra stuff, a lot of books and things on top of it for absolutely nothing. And these men are coming in droves for the training, because if it's not for that, they don't get anything. They've got their Bible, and that's all they have. Is that sufficient? Well, maybe. But is it the wisest thing? To just go off and start doing things all by yourself without seeking the, uh, and considering the wisdom of the church in training men before they undertake such things. So why are, they, why are the men flocking? It's because of this. Even though some people here might say, well, you don't need to go to seminary, you don't need to go to Bible college. Those men understand it's extremely important. They know it is. So they're coming in droves. It's not only that. Their wives are very often there. The wives have training too. Do you think it would be important maybe for pastors' wives to have a little bit of instruction and things? And to do this in faith. Now, let me ask you something. If we had an answer to every question that we have, would we need faith? <laughs> I mean, faith really comes in handy when we get to those, those questions that we don't have any answers to, right? We just have to believe what the Bible says. We can't explain it and, or, or elaborate on it or anything like that. But we know that ultimately it all comes down to faith, Right? And when it comes down to it, in a sense, we're talking about faith in the Bible. I mean, ultimately, it's faith in Jesus Christ. There has to be faith in the Bible, too, that the the Bible actually reveals to us the way of salvation and everything connected to it. Right? Faith to understand and believe that God gave us this as our training tool, among other things. How much do you think we know about Jesus if it wasn't for the Bible? Josephus mentions him. It's a big volume that he wrote about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. by the Romans. There's one little couple of sentences in there that mentioned Jesus. But you know what he was noted for there in Josephus? That he was resurrected from the dead. 
But we would know, so my whole point is, you know, apart from the Bible, we would know some things about Jesus historically because no one could come and have the impact on so many people as he did without leaving a, a blurb in history, right? But about the only thing we'd be able to say about Jesus apart from the Bible is that he was a moral man who lived about 2,000 years ago and was supposedly resurrected from the dead. That's about it. About it. So is the Bible important for you and I as we sit on this quest to come and know our Lord Jesus more and more and more and more? It's absolutely essential. We need it. It's the pillar. Faith is a pillar upon which everything else we believe rests. You take away the faith, there's nothing. There's nothing we think or believe about anything that matters. As we said before, it's by faith in Jesus that we're saved. It's easy sometimes, guys, for the church to set off in directions unintentionally that eventually lead them to places where faith is no longer necessary. I would say to you the finances happens to be one of those. I heard, uh, I don't know if I, I think I shared this maybe a couple of weeks ago, but I heard one time about a deacon, deacon's meeting. It wasn't in our church. It wasn't even a PCA church, but they were, deacons were meeting to talk about the budget for the next year, and someone was, you know, talking about, you know, how we just need to trust in God. We need to do what, what we think he wants us to do, and we trust in him to bring the money. And one of them looked at him and he said, God doesn't pay the bills. Of course, he left that church. So what I'm telling you here, guys, is this, is when we approach finances here, we must, faith must be the bottom line to all of it. The question what we need to be asking ourselves is not how much money is going to come in there, sure. What we need to be asking ourselves is the question, what does God want us to do? Someone said the other day, and I really appreciate it, because this is mindset, my mindset, you know, that, that if we finished a year with no money left that came in that year, then we would have fulfilled what God wanted us to do that year. Now, that's not to say that we don't need to put money aside sometimes for special things like putting a new roof on and things like that. It would be irresponsible for us not to do that. But by and large, what I'm telling you, to me, the best budget is one where we come up where we spent every penny that came in that year. To further the ministry of Jesus Christ. Faith. It's the meat. It's the core. It's the value. Of all of it. Every bit of it. So we don't go any further. Uh, I just want to invite you to come back next week because we're going to continue in this study. Uh, and we're going to continue in it until 
until I'm gone or <laughs> one way or another or the time clicks off, right? It may take us a while. But anyway, I just want to encourage you guys. Have a great faith in a great God. He's worthy of every bit of faith you put in him, worthy of every bit of trust you put in him. He's able to do everything he needs to do. He will do it in his time and in his way. Uh, He's demonstrated how much he loves us. And and it's funny how we just sometimes doubt that love when circumstances in our life look pretty bad and dismal and things like that. But just remember this. Going Going through your week this week, just remember this one thing. And that is Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. Amen.